We'll go ahead and take your Bibles with me and turn to Matthew chapter 7. We're coming to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. This morning we'll examine Jesus' conclusions, the, the last few words here in, in the sermon. Next week we'll consider Matthew's conclusion, his wrap-up statement. But this morning we're going to be looking at verses uh, 24 through 27 in Matthew chapter 7. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are some on that table back there. If you need one, go ahead and put your hand in the air. Larry's got a few and he can bring one to you. I'm sure he'd be happy to do that for you. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Let's look at this text together this morning. Jesus says... Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. When God speaks, stuff happens. Things don't happen when God doesn't speak. The way, this is the way that he's chosen to do things. He's chosen to speak things into existence. Throughout our time in the Sermon on the Mount, we've gone back to Genesis several times, especially the first three chapters, the creation account and then the fall. And we see in the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, everything happens there because God speaks, because his words come out of his mouth and because they don't return void. In those two chapters, in the first two chapters of scripture, we don't see God thinking. We don't see God performing a dance. We don't see God work with his hands, but rather he speaks. And Jesus knows this. He's the, he's the word of God who took, took on flesh. And when he preaches this conclusion to his sermon, when he preaches these four verses to wrap up all of what he said previously, he has this in mind. And there's one little word that often gets overlooked in this text that we really need to chew on. And we're actually going to chew on it quite a bit this morning. And that's the word hear. Everyone who hears these words of mine are both the way that he starts verse 24 and the way he starts verse 26. But both of these hearers are set in contrast to one another. We see this clearly. One acts on the words and the other does not. Why? Why does one act on the words of Jesus and the other does not? I want you to you hang up that thought. We'll come back to it in a moment. Why does one man act on the words and the other does not? Hang that up. In order to lay the groundwork sort of for this text, though, as we look at it, we need to think back, first of all, to everything that we've heard so far Jesus say in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. But then we have to ask ourselves a question that we've asked ourselves a lot throughout our time together in the Sermon on the Mount. What grips my heart? What grips my heart? That's a question that we have to ask. And you know, you know what I'm saying. You know, you know what I'm saying. What stirs you up a little bit? What, stir, what gets you excited? Maybe you're thinking about spending time with your family after a long day of work. Or maybe it's helping or serving others. Maybe it's seeing that Amazon package on your steps that thing that you saved up for a long time for, you see that thing and it stirs you up a little bit and you feel a little bit of excitement. 
You feel a burst of energy thinking about it. The stuff that's wearing you down and seems monotonous in your world seems a little less burdensome. You want to call someone and let them in on your excitement? So what grips your heart? I mentioned this a long time ago in the Sermon on the Mount, but Rene Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. But unfortunately, the Bible says something completely different. It's not, I think, therefore I am. It's, I desire, therefore I am. When we ask the question, what grips our heart, we're asking the question, what do, I, what do I desire? That little thing that stirs us up, that excites us deep inside, that, friends, is what we, what we desire. And as we think about life together, and as we think about growing together in our understanding of godliness, in our understanding of the truth of the gospel, in our understanding of who God is, we have to ask ourselves, What is it that I desire? And we find then that the Christian life is deeply emotional. Now this cuts against the grain for most of us because of our culture. We we very rarely show emotions. Sometimes emotions are taboo. We don't necessarily like them or think maybe that they're beneath us. But in fact, the Christian life is deeply emotional. Well, we don't have to go anywhere past just the Psalms to see how emotional the Christian life is. I'm just going to give you two examples. Psalm 42.1, the psalmist writes, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so, my, so, so pants my soul for you, O God. We see a deep desire, an emotional response to the desire that the psalmist has for God. And then think about Psalm 63.1. The psalmist there says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And that that desire that these psalmists display, the desire that these psalmists show us is like for water when there isn't anything of it. Now, I've never been so thirsty that I've almost passed out. Maybe you have. But I, I can't imagine that that desire for water or for something to drink is intense. That it's something that is incredibly intense. And so as we consider emotions, and as we consider ourselves, we have to realize that our emotions are rooted in our desires. We suffered a pretty traumatic emotional loss as a Vikings fan last weekend. Incredibly emotional. Like, don't talk to me. Lock myself in my office. Phone calls, texts, stop it. My friend in Philadelphia was sending me texts, and I like, and I, and I, to everything inside of me, not throw the phone against the wall. Our emotions are rooted in desires. I just want the Vikings to move past the NFC Championship game once in my life. Well, can you resurrect their season, please? But our emotions, that emotion that I felt was rooted in my desire... And for example, another example, when I come home and I, I just want my kids, I, I, I want I, a long day, I want to sit down, want some peace and quiet. I get frustrated when my kids are running around and screaming, which is like 95% of the time. And the emotion of frustration flows out of my desire just for peace and quiet. You see the tie here? You see the tie? I want something, I desire something, I long for something, and my emotional response comes from that. Or maybe you desire some time with a loved one who's on their deathbed but they pass away. The emotion of sadness and grief flows out of the, the, the desire to spend more time with that person. 
to hug that person, to tell that person that you love them. Now, I'm not an emotionally complex person. Some of us very on, I have like three emotions. One of them is frustration. I've given you like them all. One is sadness and one is happiness. That's pretty much it. My wife has 47,000 emotions. And so when something happens and I look at her and I say, why are you frustrated? Why are you upset? Like those are the only emotions I can experience. And she said, the only emotion I feel is not just anger or frustration. And I say, yeah, I, I know that, but I'm not sure I understand it. So thinking about these psalms again, these psalmists say, the psalmists say that he longs for God like someone who is, is really, really, really thirsty. And when his desire, when that's his desire, he says, give me more, give me more of this. And in 63, after he's read that verse one, right? Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Later in that psalm, in verses 5 through 8, he writes, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed and meditate meditate on you in the watches of night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. My right hand, your, your right hand upholds me. Desiring the living water, the bread of life, leads to joyful praise when we are satisfied by getting a drink and by taking a bite. The psalmist's best thought comes before he drifts off to sleep. It's of God. And when he wakes up in the middle of the night, his thoughts go to God. A deep desire for God, a heart that is gripped by God, will sing for joy. This is not our strong suit. Again, emotions. Like we have a tough time demonstrating emotions. We sing here together on Sunday mornings. Sometimes it's a song that we don't know. Sometimes our heart is heavy and we don't feel like singing. But where are the times where our heart is captivated by God and who he is and what he's done for us in Christ? When was the last time your heart was gripped by God? When was the last time you thought about God and your heart swelled and considered his deep love for you? When was the last time you really marveled at the justice of God or the kindness of God or the goodness of God or his, all his omnipotence, omnipotence? I should pronounce that correctly. Don't those things make you, they, don't those things make you want to sing? That Sunday night, I preached at a small town in Streeter. There were like 25 people there. The worship was led together by like these elementary and middle school kids and they were singing out of key for like 40% of the time and it was totally distracting, but they were worshiping. And it's not about their style. It's not about the polish. It's not about a smoke and light show. It's about stoking the fire that's been doused a little bit because the, because the world has beat you up a little bit this week and it's just smoldering a little bit, but we, we, dow- we, 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 we stoke that fire that's been doused. We don't build a wall around our heart God doesn't suggest that we sing together. He commands us to sing together. Why? Because people whose hearts are gripped by God sing together. They don't just stuff their hands in the pockets and scowl. They sing. God crushed his son, Jesus Christ, so that you would no longer be an object of God's wrath, but God's child. 
And earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, we pointed out that their desires are too small. And this is our problem. Our desires are too small because they can be met by pathetic, piddly things. Like C.S. Lewis says, C.S. Lewis says this in The Weight of Glory, very popular quote. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. If our desire is for something other than God, we will be sorely disappointed because that thing that we're trying to fill that void with is temporary, is miserable, and nothing can promise you fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore like God can, and he does in Psalm 1611. I love how John Piper puts it in, in his book, When I Don't Desire God. He says, God is glorified in his people by the way we experience him, by the way we experience him, not merely by the way we think about him. Indeed, the devil thinks more thoughts about God in one day, more true thoughts about God in one day than a saint does in a lifetime, and God is not honored by it. The problem with the devil is not his theology, but his desires. Our chief end is to glorify God, the great object. We do so most fully when we treasure him, desire him, delight in him so supremely that we let goods and kindred go and display his love to the poor and to the lost. So many of us have lots of thoughts about God. Many of us have a lot of thoughts about God, but that is not translated into any kind of desire. So we, we've asked to ask ourselves this question. What grips me as we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus so, has spent so much time demonstrating for us what it looks like to live like a kingdom citizen. But the fact of the matter is we're not going to digest or understand. We're going to quickly forget these words if our heart is not gripped by God. And if we're looking at the words on page, and we're looking at these words on the page and we're not praising him, we might be serving another God altogether. This is the warning that comes through loud and clear in this text. We might be serving another God altogether if we're looking at the words on the page and we're not desiring God. We're not longing after him. We're not panting for him like a person who is, who is, who is parched, who needs water. And if we're serving an alternative God, not the God of the Bible, this is the remedy for small desires. You need to, what Jesus says, hear. Hear. Hear with your ears. I know one thing for sure, coming out of this text, dead people hear nothing, dead people desire nothing, and dead people feel nothing. But I also know this for sure, that when God speaks, stuff happens. When God speaks, stuff happens. God spoke creation into existence. Jesus' words brought Lazarus out of the grave. Jesus is God's word in flesh. So think with me about this text then. All of that to lead up. What grips our heart? What grips our heart? We need to think about the word here. Think about with me the word here and ask this question with me of this text. What does it take to hear? What does it take to hear? Our three-year-old Tev, he's three, three years old. He's the most 
selective hearing in the history of children. And you might say, no, you don't know my kid. Or you're like, no, you don't know my kid. He's the most selective hearing in, in all of human history for all of children. I'm fully convinced and maybe I'm biased, but he's, he's a pretty high functioning three-year-old just in general. But I see the little wheels turning in his head. He's concocting a plan and there's no way to break through that little stare. There's no way he's like looking past me, like daddy needs to talk to you right now, bam, right over, my, right over my shoulder and the wheels are turning. Something's going on in there. Something's happening in there and something's about to happen. He's concocting a plan. Something insane is about to go down in our house. And when that's happening, I need to communicate with him. The only way to make him hear is by getting on his level, looking at him in the eyes, and even then it's like a 50-50 and I think that there's an element to Jesus' thoughts here in this text about hearing that often gets overlooked. Again, this is not the word that a lot of people, as we read this, we say, then everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, who's like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like, will be like a fool, and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. We don't think about the hearing. But the first man winds up building his house on the rock and withstands the storm. The second man, the foolish man, builds his house on the sand and it falls when the storm comes. And we ask, what's the difference? We ask, what's the di- We look down the page and we see, sure, one built on the sand and the other built on the rock. Really important. You know, the, sure, the one follows Jesus' words and the other didn't. But I'm convinced that the first difference here comes in how each man received information. In his hearing, Jesus, throughout Matthew, Mark, and Luke, will say a handful of occasions, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's always a confusing phrase to me for a long time. I have to think about this text a little bit. You who have ears to hear, you have a hear, ears to hear the things. You have to have these things to hear. And that implies that some don't or some aren't capable of hearing. And Jesus isn't talking about physical ears. We get that. We write. We get that. He's not talking about physical ears. He's talking about receptiveness to the things of God. Who are the people that don't have the capability to hear? The spiritually dead. Those whose desires are haywire. Those whose hearts are gripped by something other than God. These are the people who don't have ears to hear. And this is the condition of the second man, the foolish man. He hears the words, but he does not do them. He heard, but his hearing was nothing more than sound waves hitting whatever is going on in there biologically. It's just hitting that stuff in there. It's not penetrating, just neurons firing and whatever, I don't know. But the first man, he heard and his heart was spiritually alive and receptive, capable of something more than auditory reception. And the first man acts on what he heard. A channel is opened from here to his heart. And he said, my king is calling. I love my king. He's done amazing things for me. And that one responds by trusting his king. And he builds his house on the rock. And the second man, on the other hand, ignores Jesus' words. And he builds his house on this garbage foundation. And that leads to big problems for him. We'll get to that in a minute. But Jesus, just a few verses previously in the text we looked at a couple weeks ago, 
tells his followers that they'll know false prophets, or we could say false professors, people who profess things falsely about who God is, will know them by their fruit. And the things that they do will not be in line with what Jesus says, and they will not be defined by their love for God and their love for neighbor. They will build their house on the sand that is always shifting, and Jesus says, look at their house, what's the foundation, my words or something else? So the same truth is contained in this morning's text. The one who is favored by God has received ears to hear. God's favor is upon him or her, and therefore he or she obeys because the heart has been gripped by God himself. And the one who does not have God's favor ignores the commands because his or her heart is gripped by something else entirely. So we ask the question again, when we see who you has ears to hear, let him hear. Every, everyone who hears these words of mine, everyone who hears these words of mine, we must ask ourselves, what is my heart gripped by? What grips my heart? These men, one has ears to hear and the other doesn't. There's a wise man and a foolish man. But practically, we see in the text too, practically, we ask ourselves this question. It's our next point. What marks the life of the foolish man? We're going to look at verses 26 and 27. What marks the life of the foolish man? And how do we avoid that? Right? We look at the verse and we're like, yeah, we, build, we want to build our house on the rock. But what does it look like to avoid building our house on the sand and being foolish? <coughs> Excuse me. The second man, the one Jesus calls foolish not having ears to hear and building on the foundation of sand shows us that the foolish man is in, first thing, he's in too much of a hurry. Just very practically. Let's get this task done. Let's get it taken care of. I have to build this house. My honey-do list is like a mile long. So I'm just going to cut corners. This is a frantic life with no margin. And it's at odds with the Christian life. Why? Why? Because it shows a lack of trust. I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this, and it all has to happen right now. Jesus is actually giving us commentary, I think, on this passage in Isaiah, this one verse. Isaiah 28.6 says, Behold, I am the one who's laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, and a sure foundation. Whoever believes in me will not be in haste. Slow down. God is saying, slow down. Trust my words. They're your foundation. Take a deep breath. Trust in the Lord. The one who trusts in God won't be in a hurry. And secondly, practically, the foolish man doesn't think that the instruction is necessary. He thinks there's a better way, a quicker way. His way is always best. He does not acknowledge Jesus as his king. He thinks that he's king. Everything in this man's world is about him. This house is about me. Let's get it built quickly. So he's in too much of a hurry. He doesn't think the instruction is necessary. And then finally, the foolish man doesn't look past today. The foolish man doesn't look past today. The wise man slows down and considers the possibilities of what's coming, right? Storms, rain, what's coming, something coming in the future. Let's slow down and think about those things. The foolish man only thinks about the here and now. Now, if you're thinking about this text related to something we talked about just a few weeks ago, you're probably making an objection. And if you're not making an objection, uh, let me make it for you. 
Didn't Jesus just a few verses ago, didn't he just say, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. First you said, don't, don't worry about tomorrow, but then you say, well, think about tomorrow. That's a good objection. I'm glad you made it. Here's the answer to that. The anxious man and the wise man are, are not the same, obviously. They're not the same. Their priorities are not the same. The anxious man has not recalled that God has promised his good in all situations. Instead, in unbelief, he worries about food and clothing. He does not, with the verse right before it says, seek the kingdom of God first. The wise man from our text thinks about the future. He thinks about it from the position of seeking the kingdom first. What does it look like to seek the kingdom of God first and think about my future? He asks, what does the seeking the kingdom of God, building on the rock, mean for today? It means that I'm not in a hurry, that my way isn't always best, that it isn't always about me, that I love to serve my king. And so as we've seen so often in the Sermon on the Mount, it's what's going on in the heart. That's what's going on in the heart. And that heart that is receptive to the words of Jesus is one that God puts inside of us when, we call us, when we're called as children. You don't work for it. Building your house in the right way doesn't get you a heart of flesh. A heart of stone will always be anxious about and build on the sand. A heart of flesh will always, in faith, build on the rock. So that leads us to ask another question. If we just ask the question, what marks the life of the foolish man? We have to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to build on the rock like Jesus says? We go all the way back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount again. Remember that Jesus is around the Sea of Galilee. There's just a little geographical marker, just one, one word. Jesus hanging her out around there. And the reason Matthew tells us this is probably because of Jesus' conclusion. Like Galilee during the summer months, hot, dry. The sand around the Sea of Galilee would get really nice and hard. It would seem like a really good thing to build your house on. But during the rainy season, things changed dramatically and that sand became a really poor foundation. So residents of the area realized that they needed to dig down deep to bedrock in order to build a house. But again, the foolish man skips the step. He skips the digging down deep step. He just builds right on top of it. He says, this is hard. This seems pretty good. We'll just go with this. I'm in a hurry. Digging down deep takes a long time. It's a pretty good option. But when the storm comes and the rain comes, his foolishness is seen by everyone. And so building your house in the rock means hearing the words of Jesus and responding in faith. Again, building your house on the rock means hearing the words of Jesus, not just auditory reception, not just auditory reception, but that the ears, your spiritual receptiveness is open and available to hear the words of Jesus and respond then in faith. Paul says it like this in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the words of Christ awaken us. Because just like God spoke all of creation into existence, he speaks and you are recreated. This is why the Christian life is just not about doing stuff. We think about that often. We think the Christian life is about doing stuff. I got to do all these things that Jesus says. 
What am I going to do? I just have to do, just tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. We've got to get past that. Hopefully after 31 weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll get past that. You can do nothing apart from Christ. Jesus says this clearly. John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing, literally nothing. This is not hyperbole. Apart from me, you can do nothing, literally nothing. Why? Because apart from Jesus, apart from the true vine, you're dead. Apart from Christ, you have what Jesus says in the very next verse. John 15, 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Paul tells the Galatians, in Galatians 2.16, he says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. We cannot be justified by works of the law because that is our work, our effort. Apart from Christ, we cannot do anything. But in Christ, Paul tells us, Philippians 4.13, you know it. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Not to go on the locker room wall, but to understand what we can do in Christ. I can do all things. I can build on the rock. I can hear Jesus' words and I can respond in faith. I can trust God. I can live a pleasing life, a life that's pleasing to my Father because in Christ, we are new creations. Over and over and over again, this theme comes up throughout the Sermon on the Mount. In Christ, we are new creations. And as new creatures, spiritual ears are formed and are being formed in you. This is God working in you. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. And therefore, when our spiritual ears are formed and a channel is open to our hearts, we receive the words of Christ and we build on a firm foundation. We dig down to bedrock. Faith is digging down deep to bedrock. You can trust yourself. That's sand. You can trust in men. That's sand. You can trust in chariots and horses and bank accounts and business strategies and retirement plans. That's all sand. The bedrock is trusting the Lord and complete dependence on him. And this demands radical responses. Friends, this demands radical responses. Give away your retirement account. Get less sleep and listen to it. Encourage a friend whose marriage is on the rocks. Let someone who is in between jobs and hurting stay in your spare bedroom. Give without expectation of return. God's generosity knows no boundaries. Is yours? Patiently bear with frustrating people. You know who I'm talking about. God, patience towards you is great, is yours. Love your neighbor as yourself. God's love for you extended to the place where he offered up his son in your place. Is your love for others radical? The bedrock that we're digging down to is trusting the Lord and complete dependence on him. This is not an easy path. This is not an easy path. If you show up on a Sunday morning and think, this is going to be a cakewalk, this Christian life thing, I think I got this down pretty good. I'm doing pretty great. Everybody come look at me. Jesus' word should shake us. 
The way is easy that leads to destruction. The way is hard that leads to life. This is just a few verses earlier. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about the foolish man. The trouble with him ultimately is that he does not really desire to know God. Remember, what grips you? He wants God's blessing, but does not want God. He does not really desire to serve God and to worship him with his whole being. He simply wants to know things that he believes God can give him. To sum up, his real trouble is that he does not know the meaning of the expression hungering and thirsting after righteousness. He does not know the meaning of, or he's not interested in righteousness. He's not interested in holiness. He really does not want to be like Christ. He simply wants to be made comfortable. So we look at this text, there's so much here. And as we wrap up this morning, I'm concerned, but Dr. Jones, what his, what his words say to us, I'm concerned that this is many of you and that many of us fall into this latter category, verses 26 and 27, that we're building our house under sand because we're in too much of a hurry, because we haven't cultivated any kind of margin in our lives. Because we feel, like, we feel like our way is best and we feel like we've got a pretty good understanding of what this is all about. And so we're not digging down deep to bedrock. I'm concerned that this is many of us. When we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot of really hard things here. And I'm afraid that for some of you, it hasn't caused you to think twice. It's really my biggest fear as a pastor, that this wouldn't cause us to think twice about our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. There's many of you want the title Christian or Christ follower or disciple or child of God. But you've never given a second thought to the life that flows out of someone who has that identity. What does that look like? That's what the, king, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Being kingdom citizens and a life that flows out of the understanding that God has demonstrated to us his favor. Maybe you come to Sunday morning worship and never give a second thought at how to love your neighbor or your God. This is what people do, so I guess I'll do it too. We leave here on Sunday morning and never give a second thought to what we talked about in the text or the sermon or how the application works itself out for you. Or maybe you just ignore God's word altogether or maybe when you read it, you just think to yourself, this is something that's passe or you just forget altogether the things that you've read. Or maybe you think that you can just leave all the super spiritual stuff to like the church leadership or yeah, they'll take care of it. They'll take care of, care of all the other people. Loving others, that thing, that's for super spiritual people who really are into the Bible. And like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we just want to be made comfortable. And we say, well, that, that isn't me. We really have to ask ourselves that question. In all earnestness, we have to ask ourselves a question. We just want to be made comfortable. We have to ask ourselves, what's, what's the question? To, what grips your heart? What do you long for? What do you desire? What makes your heart swell? What makes you frustrated when you don't get it? Digging down deep to bedrock requires all of you. It requires all of you. This, this is not easy work. This is not easy work. You can't outsource the digging down deep to bedrock.
Do I have ears to hear? Because we know that when God speaks, stuff happens. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, I alluded to it earlier. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So my word, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I am convinced that this is the greatest promise that we can have. That when God speaks, stuff happens. It does not return to him void. It does not come back to him empty. As the water comes down from heaven and waters the earth and does not return there, it brings forth, it sprouts, it gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. This is the way in which God's word is effective. When God speaks, stuff happens. God's word is effective and powerful. And when it falls on ears, that, it, that here it grips the heart and it makes it alive. You rejoice, you sing for joy. You were dead, but no longer. Hearts that are alive, dig deep down to bedrock. You say, how can I get more? How can I get more? My king is calling. I love my king. He's done great things for me. But when it falls on ears that don't hear, the heart is left in cold, dead state. You remain quiet. We don't have anything to rejoice over. Our heart wanders from one broken idol to the next. And so what we need to do, simple, simple application. Everyone, we need to pray, God, give me ears to hear. Form my spiritual receptors. Give me ears to hear. When I sit down in the morning, 5.30 a.m., before my kids are up, and I look at the text, when I read the very words of God, inspired by the Spirit of Christ, before me, Pray the prayer. Give me ears to hear. That prayer requires a lot of humility because in that moment what you're saying is that I'm no longer depending on myself and my ingenuity and my intellect to get me through this text and to understand why it is that God has given it to us. It requires a lot of humility because in that moment, we understand that we're not the most important thing in the world, that the world does not revolve around us, that the universe is not fixed at us with us at the center. It requires a lot of humility, but it needs to be prayed. It is completely necessary. Remember again a few weeks ago, Jesus says to his followers, kind of in this passage, it seems a little out of place. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. I'm convinced that this is what Jesus wants his followers to pray. Give me ears that hear. Give me ears that hear. Your father is, who is in heaven gives good things to those who ask, is what Jesus says in verse 11. 
If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? It is a good thing to have ears that hear. And when God speaks, things happen. Let's pray.